Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And if you've been listening to us for a while, you probably know that one of our favorite subjects in the whole world is evolution. Uh, It's got to be, right? We're a science podcast. And evolution by natural selection, I think, is the single most interesting phenomenon in the entire world. Right. I mean, it's it's the subject underlying any discussion of cool biology. Uh, whether you're talking about uh, about a really interesting insect, uh, some sort of uh, strange, uh, you know, um, uh, microbe out there in the world, or or just uh, the the human condition itself, uh, it always brings us back around to evolution. It's the science of a child's curiosity, where you go out and you you know you look at an insect or an animal, and you want to know like why does it have that little thing right there? How did it get that way? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and so it, obviously we're not the only people who feel this way. I I always like this. Uh, analogy if some people have criticized it but uh but in his book Darwin's Dangerous Idea the philosopher Daniel Dennett characterized evolution by natural selection as what he called a universal acid quote it eats through just about every traditional concept and leaves in its wake a revolutionized worldview with most of the old landmarks still recognizable but transformed in fundamental ways uh, i like that quote i i think it makes a lot of sense to me because evolution kind of it it changes the way you see everything in a way. Mm-hmm. This, this uh, he's approaching it from the standpoint of if you didn't know about evolution and then you 
learned about it or certainly the, the, the history of human beings trying to understand their natural environment. Yeah, though, of course, Dennett goes to another space where he applies sort of evolutionary framework, the evolutionary mechanism to things other than just biology. Like he gets into the idea of memetics, you know, mm. do, does evolution apply to units of information shared between people? And you know, there are people who debate, you know, whether that's a useful concept or not. We could come back to that sometime in oh, the future. Yeah. But um, there's some actually some really great research uh, that I've read uh, related to to supersonic airlines and helicopters mm-hmm. and uh, applying evolutionary theory to uh, to, to the way that uh, that we see these different forms of airplanes emerge and then go extinct in, some, in many cases. Oh, like designs of – what do you call them? Chassis, the hull? What do you – fuselage? Designs of the forms oh, yeah, of the, these. The form changing over time but then reaching uh, forms that ultimately are unsustainable mm-hmm. uh, in the long term. So in the same way that nature may produce uh, the mammoth – uh, which, which uh, this may not be a, 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 a direct line of comparison here, but because uh, I can't remember the exact uh, uh, phrasing in the paper, but um, but the, the the supersonic airline, uh, the the Concorde, mm-hmm. uh, could be thrown up as an example of uh, like a, like a giant beast that evolved and was uh, very very good in a particular role, but then due to changes in its uh, uh, environment, went right. extinct. Could not be sustained by the energy economy of its environment. Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. and so of course. Ev- Evolutionary biology has come a long way since the days of Charles Darwin, say, in the original publication of On the Origin of Species. Uh, and always that the, one of my pet peeves, get the title of that right. It's On the Origin of Species. It's about where species come from. What do people think it means when they say on the origin of the species? What species? I've never heard it uh, mislabeled. Oh, like a that. lot of people call it the origin of uh, or the origin of the species. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah that would be incorrect, doesn't it? But no, it's on the sense. origin of species. Where do species come from? Why are there all these different species? Uh, but anyways, since the days of on the origin of species, uh, a lot of new, you know, nuance and understanding has been developed since then. Uh, but Darwin's theory, I think, still remains one of the most brilliant and startling moments in the history of science. And yet there is an extremely common phrase that people use to refer to evolution by natural selection. It's a phrase that even appears in some later editions of On the Origin of Species. And this phrase really bugs me. And this is what I want to focus on today, a a criticism of this particular phrase, a case that you should not use it. And that phrase is survival of the fittest. Mm. I think these four unfortunate words, while meant to communicate a revolutionary truth, actually cause a host of misunderstandings about evolution. Evolution. And there's a reason why you don't often hear actual biologists talking about survival of the fittest. You mostly hear it in like a very like, uh, you know, regular person's understanding of evolution. Uh, they might refer to like, you know, animals fighting each other and, and point out, yeah, that's survival of the fittest. Right. Or they'll use it in a social context to sort of like back up bad behavior by oh, pointing at evolution yes. and be like, yeah, I'm kind of a jerk at work, but hey, survival of the fittest. Exactly. You know? Uh, and and I think that's one of the reasons that it is it often feels so distasteful to, to hear those words because it does have a distinctly uh, uh, Nietzschean vibe to it, doesn't it? You know, it brings to mind the Hunger Games or the Running Man Battle Royale. Yeah, and <laughs> every re- also every reality TV show that uh, has been inflicted on us thus far, uh-huh. or even like a true. I, I don't know if you were referring to Battle Royale, the movie, the Japanese film. Yeah, yeah, or, or where like, you know it's like. 
a dozen school kids enter, one school kid leaves. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah, it's, or it's Thunderdome, right? Right. Or uh, in a pro wrestling context, it's a, it's a battle royal, like the Royal Rumble. You know, uh, there can only be one winner at the end of this thing, and uh, it's gonna, they're going to be standing in the ring, and it's going to be the, you know, the, 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 the sweatiest, the most muscular, the most skilled <laughs> performer of them all. Is the one that has the most offspring, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> that would be an interesting study. I'd like to see the, the, the look at the offspring um, of all Royal Rumble uh, winners. But uh, anyway. What, like championship possession to fertility rates or something? No, I think just the Royal Rumble. I, let's let's keep it limited. You know, then you have uh, fewer data points to to look at. Uh, but I'll leave that work to someone else, uh, though, because uh, basically the point is that natural selection doesn't really have anything in common with the Royal Rumble. But there's there's because there's obviously more going on in, in, with evolution, and it resists so easy a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Because what does this metaphor really do for us? The survival of the fittest. It takes a gradual process that is transgenerational. And it breaks it down to an individual level. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it reduces it along multiple axes to terms that uh, give people a narrow view of what evolution is and the mechanism by which it happens. Right, and of course we have a narrow view. I mean, that's one of the things about about being humans with brains that have evolved. Uh, you know, like we're we're not really we didn't really evolve to be able to gaze backward in time with this kind of depth mm-hmm. and have some sort of sort of innate understanding of it. So we end up falling back on tools like this at times. Uh, yeah, and we're going to talk about some a specific like list of reasons why we don't love this phrase later in the episode and reasons why maybe it's not the best phrase to use when talking about evolution. But yeah, it's clear that one of the problems with it is it makes us think about fighting. Why, it's yeah. like it makes us think about the wrestlers getting into the ring. I'm not sure exactly why that is. Maybe it's uh, it's the combination of the word fit, which makes you think like muscly, mm-hmm. and survival, which makes you think violent conflict. Yeah, and it's also it, and it's also used in in describing uh, various conflicts among animals. I think. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it, it works on an individual level to a certain extent. You can say, all right, why did Rey Mysterio win the two thousand six Royal Rumble? Oh, did well, he? Yeah, he did. Okay. Uh, but you can say, oh, well, he was the fittest. He was the fastest. He was the most skilled, et cetera. Um, you but wait s- a minute. No, wasn't that act- – I mean this is like pro wrestling, right? Well, I mean it is It is a, an athletic fiction to be sure. But within the confines of the athletic fiction, okay. he was the most skilled. But then also – Okay. So he, you're saying if we go with the narrative. Right. This- but even if you go outside of the narrative, you could you could point to certain things and say, well – based on the appeal of that character and how much merchandise the character was selling uh-huh. and perhaps other factors sort of in the zeitgeist of pro wrestling fandom at the time, he was the fittest and therefore was selected to be the star of that attraction. This makes me think that pro wrestling outcomes might be more like real evolution because there's actually a very complex, nuanced network of factors going into who wins, including who's most popular with the crowds, who's best at playing politics with the internal you know, mm-hmm. uh, wrestling network people who's Who's best at sucking up to the bosses or whatever? Yeah, who's uh, injured? Who's not? Yeah, just you know, random factors like that. Maybe who happened to be standing around when somebody was looking for somebody to talk to about who was going to win that time? I don't know how it really works, but yeah, <laughs> th- th- this is more like evolution because actually all of these complex environmental factors are coming into play, and it's not just about fighting and strength and who's bigger and stronger. Well, let, let me uh, base it in a fiction that you're a little more familiar with. Uh, one might ask, why did Connor? Mc- cloud outlast all the other immortals and eventually slay the Kurgan to win the prize in 1986. Well, I would say it's because he just had that special kind of magic. 
<laughs> uh, we're talking about the movie Highlander, of course, and that's a uh, uh, that's a, an impersonation of uh, of the the wonderful actor Christopher Lambert. Uh, but yeah, he, off. It's it's a survival of the fittest in that movie, right? Yeah, uh, just the, the the best beheader wins. Yeah. Also, he had a friend, uh, a girlfriend, whereas the Kurgan did not. Ah. And I, if I remember correctly, she hits the Kurgan with a pipe at one point. Mm-hmm. So you can make an argument that it's not only like is he really good at fighting with a sword, but can he build up the kind of social relationships that are going to be necessary to see him through. Uh, to the end of the uh, the ordeal. But as you point out, I mean, these are all questions where we're looking at like an individual organism in an individual struggle, like some fight with another, you know, being of the same Highlander category. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in reality, in biology, that's not usually the question we're asking. We're not usually asking like, why did this snake win in a fight against this other snake? Right. We're usually asking something uh, more like, why does this animal have this trait it has? Or where did this species come from? Yeah, like like when you start asking these same questions about specific organisms, it, it's a lot more difficult. Like, why did the orca emerge as the ocean's top predator? Um, you know, it's not as simple as like, oh well, orca be- beat megalodon or whatever your your <laughs> right. argument is. You know, it's it you, you can't just use a thunderdome analogy to really explain it away. Or why did uh, why have earthworms thrive for six hundred million years? Um, you, you you can't just point to a ter- tournament bracket and say, well, here's why you beat the Kurgan. Right. Or, or just even broader, like, like, what is it about birds? <laughs> why? What is it about birds? Why, why birds? What are birds? What are birds? Nobody knows for sure. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious how, you, yeah, when you start thinking about the, the phrase survival of the fittest, you can see where it breaks down in any kind of uh, even half-serious contemplation of, um, of species and, and why they exist, why they've thrived, or why they uh, cease to thrive, why they go extinct. Because we've seen some really fit organisms over the years that have, have simply gone away. Yeah, was the Tyrannosaurus rex not fit enough? Well, I mean, in one sense, of course, it was not. But mm-hmm. in the sense that people most often conjure in their minds when they think about being fit in an evolutionary sense, like, yeah, it was really big. It was strong. It was a top predator. Yeah. And, of course, we've discussed on the show before how we often have this this uh, the, the wrong idea in our heads about what it means to be a top predator. Yeah. But this is actually a very fragile place uh, in the ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it, but, it, but again, it's not like a simply like, oh, well, T-Rex won the Royal Rumble. Uh, it, you know, that's a secure position. No, it's, it's not. Well, I think we should take a quick break and then when we come back, we can discuss the origins of this phrase that we believe is somewhat unfortunate. And then we can get into reasons why we think maybe it should be uh, maybe put by the wayside. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. 
Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So we're talking about evolution. We're talking about the the phrase survival of the fittest. So we're asking the question now, uh, where did the phrase survival of the fittest come from in the first place? It was actually not coined by Charles Darwin. Mm -hmm. uh, for a brief refresher, because we got to look back at Darwin's version of evolution. What did Darwin have in mind when he published on the origin of species? You know, what was his theory? Well, his theory basically has 
uh, three components, I'd say. You've got uh, heritability, you know, that uh, offspring can inherit traits from their parents. You've got random variation in those heritable traits. And then you've got natural selection. So, of course, the heritable variation happens when individuals of the same species are born with little differences. So you've got like earthworms that have little bristly hairs on their segments and they use these tiny hairs to push themselves along through the soil. And maybe some earthworms have longer hairs and maybe some have shorter hairs and these differences can be inherited from their parents uh, after their parents have earthworm sex. And you should look up what earthworm sex looks like, by the way. It's it's pretty good. Uh, they kind of like join, join like uh, – I don't know which end it is actually. One end of their bodies to that little bulbous stripe in the middle of their bodies yeah. and then they go both ways. I Make sure you use a responsible uh, image search uh, uh, application on that, that one though. <laughs> but yeah, so the idea would be that these differences in the length of the hairs could be in the genes and thus they could be passed on to offspring. It's a heritable variation. And then natural selection occurs when those little differences, those random heritable variations interact with the environment to produce different levels of success. So maybe shorter bristles are better for moving through one type of soil and maybe longer bristles are better for, for moving through a different type of soil. And this leads to different soil environments favoring the flourishing of different variations of earthworm. So maybe the soil in my backyard uh, makes it a lot easier to survive and reproduce and have lots of little worm kids if you have uh, longer hairs. So the worms back there over time are going to have longer and longer hairs. That mechanism there where the environment selects for that trait of longer hairs is the natural selection part. It's the way that the environment allows some heritable traits to flourish more than others. Uh, and of course, if differences like these build up over time in different environments and the worms become more and more different, you may eventually get two different species of worm that are reproductively isolated. They don't mate with each other anymore. This is, of course, the origin of species. Now, to come back to Thunderdome for just a moment, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's also – like even if you're, you're using a Thunderdome analogy, um, the whole idea of like two organisms enter, one organism leaves, you know, two species enter, one species leaves, mm -hmm. like that, that also wouldn't hold up because uh, – you know, for, for obvious reasons, sort of because we have speciation like we've been discussing, but also different traits uh, are sometimes favored within a species. Mm -hmm. So an example that, that comes to mind here is the cuttlefish, where selection pressures will favor, uh, seem to favor both aggressive um, large male cuttlefish, but also smaller, sneakier male cuttlefish. So there's not just one way to be a successful male cuttlefish. Right. There, there are like multiple niches even for the same one species. Right. And in some cases, you'll see speciation occur where you know it, it essentially becomes two species and you have subspecies etc but uh, but yeah it's 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 limiting to really come back to this notion of uh, survival of the fittest because again evolution is not thunderdome Right. Uh, so to come back to, to Darwin and where this phrase came from, there's a great online research tool from Cambridge University that allows you to read Charles Darwin's letters. And I was reading the exchange that introduced the phrase survival of the fittest into the Darwinian canon. And this exchange took place in 1866. And it was between Darwin and another British naturalist named Alfred Russell Wallace. Now, Wallace is 
often noted as somebody who got the short end of the stick in history because he independently developed a theory of evolution by natural selection pretty much at the same time Darwin did. But Darwin's work was ultimately the more influential and so Darwin is the one who gets remembered. And I think one reason was that uh, Darwin is not only such a great scientist but it's because he was a great writer and that made his work more uh, more powerful and, and memorable. Uh, but uh, a huge part of Darwin's struggle in the scientific world was after he'd already made the bulk of his observations and formulated his theory about where species come from. His task then became primarily a science communication problem. This is, you know, this is like a cl the classic science mm -hmm. communication problem. How do you convince a skeptical audience that animal species can be – of course, not just animals, all organisms. But, you know, uh, this often focuses on animals because they're the clearest example to us. That uh, how, how do you convince a skeptical audience that animal species can be changed in form by their natural environment and that organisms as diverse as the bullfrog and the wolf might share a common ancestor, especially given that it was like a, a really – common theological belief at the time that nature was a fixed hierarchy with us at the top in which species had been created separately since the beginning and man had been granted dominion over all of them. Yeah, I mean that's the the, the classic Old Testament uh, Garden of Eden uh, scenario. Right. Uh, created man – created all these animals, man got to name the animals, but that, uh, that hierarchy was in place from the beginning in right. this theological understanding, whereas evolution reveals that, uh, and this is something we touched on recently on the show, that, that human beings are just primates mm -hmm. uh, and primates that evolved into their current state. Yeah, and just that all of these other animals, they're, they're not in fixed categories that mm -hmm. have been established since the beginning of time. They, they change constantly. Yeah, it's kind of – it's the difference between, say, a, a divine being saying, yep, I got this, this concept for a frog. Here it is. Uh -huh. uh, in fact, here are various takes on the frog. But it's more like I, I have this process in mind and uh, – at one, at, at, for a while, it's going to match up with this frog thing, but it's also going to go in a million different degrees. Like it, it's totally out of and, keeping with a, this anthropomorphic uh, view of how nature should come together. Yeah, and to be fair, there are tons of people, you know, today who are theistic evolutionists, people who believe in, you know, some form of God or religion, and also believe in evolution. And uh, many of them believe something like the latter thing you said. Oh yeah, I, think, I mean, you know, because uh, yeah, I think it's the difference between expecting a divine being to approach a, a, a creation in the same way that we approach approach making pottery, mm -hmm. uh, whereas obviously a, a god would not need to or a goddess would not need to uh, use that – be limited by those kind of skills. Like the, the tools uh, that a god would use would be something on the lines of uh, – uh, on the order of, of, of evolution and natural selection. Yeah. Like, and and of, of course we should uh, at times have trouble fully fitting those tools into our own heads, right? Right. So – so you're Darwin in the 1860s. How do you convince this skeptical audience? Obviously, a big part of appealing to a skeptical audience is choosing the right words to convey your meaning in a way that isn't confusing. Uh, so if you're Charles Darwin, what words should you choose to communicate the mechanism by which evolution takes place. And of course, Darwin, we know, chose the phrase natural selection. It's actually there in the full title of the book, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. As in nature or the environment selects certain traits to become more abundant by allowing organisms with those traits to survive and have more offspring. And in On the Origin of Species, uh, Darwin compares and contrasts the process of natural selection to the process of artificial selection, like the breeding 
breeding of dogs and horses. So you want to make a dog with a really short snout. Well, you can try to just keep breeding the shortest snouted dogs together and through the generations, their offspring will probably inherit shorter and shorter snouts. Natural selection is like this except it's the natural environment that does the breeding rather than a human. So, for instance, the pug is uh-huh. um, is is a product. the the the, the dog uh, breed pug is a is a product of artificial selection, right? And, uh, and and specialized breeding. It's hard to imagine a pug being created by nature. I know that's kind of the challenge, right? <laughs> but uh, then again, what, our imaginations are so limited. They are, yeah. Conceivably, there could be some sort of an environment that demands the form of the pug. <laughs> I, I, I have extreme difficulty imagining it, but conceivably it could exist. Right. Uh, so I want to admit that I'm a fan of the phrase natural selection. I think it is actually a very good phrase to describe what's happening here. Obviously, there is there is some level of metaphor going on because what we're really talking about is a process that, that just unfolds in a way almost tautologically. It's like the traits that give rise to organisms that have the most offspring become the most numerous. You know, when you phrase it like that, that that's not – that is accurate, but that's not really catchy, you know. Um, so you've got to have a – you've got to have a short phrase that's succinct that you can refer to. And I think natural selection is a great metaphor for saying how that happens. It um – it, it also – I think it's – this is maybe just be sort of accident uh, over, over the years. But it also – like when you hear people that are opposed to evolution or, or speak out against it and have some other, uh, you know, generally, um, uh, you know, religious view of reality that they want to push forward instead, uh, generally they're, they're, they're speaking out against evolution. They're not speaking out against natural selection or at least natural <laughs> selection is not is not, not the wording that's going on the, uh, you know, the protest signs or the bumper sticker or whatever it may be. Well, a common thing you'll actually hear from some creationists is that they attack uh, macroevolution but not microevolution. Mm. That's not a real distinction that's made in science much. Um, but basically I think they're – that's just saying like, well, yeah, you know, species, they might do – you know, we're, we're not so committed to the idea of a fixed hierarchy anymore. There's widespread acknowledgement I think that species do change. Right. Uh, there's just like more of a rejection of the idea of common descent and the large view of evolution. Right. It's, it's more – it's opposition to some of the key take-homes. Yeah. Uh, which I, in my opinion, it, it's generally squabbling over nothing. You know, again, it's coming down to like, like really this, this, this couldn't be the, the tools utilized by a divine being. Uh, so I, I fail to see the problem most of the time. Sure. I guess it depends on the God, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so there were obviously some problems with the phrase natural selection. Uh, of course, we've acknowledged it is sort of a metaphor. And this is where Alfred Russell Wallace comes in in that correspondence I mentioned earlier. So by 1866, Wallace was, uh, of course, a supporter of Darwin's and he was trying to help him make his public case. And in July 1866, Wallace wrote a letter to Darwin giving some examples of how the phrase natural selection was giving fire to his critics. Uh, So I'm going to read a selection from this letter. He writes, My dear Darwin, I have been so repeatedly struck by the utter inability of numbers of intelligent persons to see clearly or at all the self-acting and necessary effects of natural selection that I am led to conclude that the term itself and your mode of illustrating it, however clear and beautiful to many of us, are yet not the best adapted to impress it on the general naturalist public. 
The last two cases of this misunderstanding are, first, the article on Darwin and his teachings in the last Quarterly Journal of Science, which, though very well written and on the whole appreciative, yet concludes with a charge of something like blindness in your not seeing that, quote, natural selection requires the constant watching of an intelligent chooser like man's selection to which you so often compare it. And uh, second, in Yenay's work in, on the materialism of the present day, reviewed in last Saturday's Reader by an extract from which I see that he considers your weak point to be that you do not see that, quote, thought and direction are essential to the action of natural selection. The same objection has been made a score of times by your chief opponents, and I have heard it as often stated myself in conversation. So the, the the key criticism here is if you say natural selection, it implies that there is a selector. Right. There's somebody doing selecting. Mm -hmm. Now, personally, I'm not sure all of these objections actually arise from genuine confusion created by the phrase natural selection. I mean, I think we know from our experiences with this subject even today that – Sometimes there are just cases of people feeling compelled to lodge their theological objections and finding any little foothold they can get to do that. So it might not be in every case that the phrase is actually confusing people. But I can see maybe in some cases it is. Um, but Wallace has a suggestion here. He says, quote, now, I think this arises almost entirely from your choice of the term natural selection and so constantly comparing it in its effects to man's selection, also to your so frequently personifying nature as, quote, selecting, as preferring, as seeking only the good of the species. To the few, this is as clear as daylight and beautifully suggestive, but to many it is evidently a stumbling block. I wish, therefore, to suggest to you the possibility of entirely avoiding this source of misconception in your great work, if not now too late, and also in many future editions of The Origin, and I think it may be done without difficulty and very effectually by adopting Spencer's term, which he generally uses in preference to natural selection, viz. survival of the fittest. So here's where it comes from. Alfred Russell Wallace suggests it in this letter and later he writes that, quote, survival of the fittest rather than of those who are less fit could not possibly be denied or misunderstood. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, so I think we, we have made the case that it can definitely be denied and can definitely be misunderstood. Now, he brings up the point of the you know, criticism of personification of, uh, of evolution. Yeah, which we, happens a lot in yeah, writing I mean, about evolution. I mean, yeah. it, we've talked about this on the show before because I, I, in the past, like we've, we've had listeners write in and say, I think you're personifying evolution a little bit in that episode. And at times, I feel like it's, you can't help but do it to a certain extent if you're trying to understand some of these concepts and communicate them to a general audience. And talk in a non-laborious way. Right. Like it is possible to talk about evolution without personifying it, but to do so, you often have to speak in a way that is really – it sounds obnoxious. Right. And it's it's actually kind of comforting to see that Darwin himself, <laughs> uh, you know, encountered criticism for personifying evolution. Yeah. Um, that, uh, I, I want to stress though that I, I, th I think it is important to understand the um, – 
you know, the risk of doing so. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so I'm not saying just blindly stumble forward and personify like a mad god in discussing a natural selection. Right. But on the other hand, like we're inevitably going to do it um, and uh, hopefully we'll just always keep in, in mind the risk of doing so. Right. Uh, so who is this Spencer guy that the phrase survival of the fittest comes from? Well, Herbert Spencer, uh, uh, he, so he coined the term survival of the fittest in 1864 installment of a book uh, that was called Principles of Biology. He was an English philosopher who is now best remembered as a sort of radical individualist. And we'll come back to more on Spencer a bit later. I think Spencer himself is part of the problem with the legacy of the phrase survival of the fittest. Uh, but anyway, in this letter, at least, Darwin replied gratefully. He said uh, he thought there was merit to Wallace's suggestion. And in uh, On the Origin of Species, oh, so it had already been through several editions, but the next edition that he could add this to was the fifth edition, and he did. He added several instances of the phrase survival of the fittest uh, to a few chapters of the book, and he also used it in some other writings. And personally, I think Darwin made a mistake here. I think natural selection, which is, again, in some sense a metaphor, is a perfectly good expression. I think he explained it well in his original writing. And I think a lot of the confusion about selection necessitating a conscious selector can't really be made in good faith if you've read in full about the mechanisms in play in evolution. And so, so yeah, I, I think he should have stuck with natural selection. And so maybe we should take another break and then when we come back, we can discuss some reasons why we think maybe survival of the fittest uh, is, is a phrase to be avoided. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So we're in the middle of the battle royale here. Uh, there, <laughs> we, we have we have two competitors left in the ring. One, natural selection. Mm-hmm. The other, uh, survival of the fittest. Which will prevail. Yeah, which one's <laughs> going to stay in the ring? Which one's going over the top rope? All right, yeah. So I think we should discuss a number of reasons why this phrase, survival of the fittest, is not the best way to talk about evolution and how it works. And one reason is something we've already alluded to but I think deserves a lot of emphasis That is, number one, it creates the false impression that evolution is only driven by survival. Now, we we talk a lot on the show about various forms of sexual selection, Mm -hmm. selection in uh, parenting, in, uh, you know, investments made in offspring. In fact, survival is just one piece of the natural selection equation. And in fact, sometimes survival is even sacrificed for evolutionary benefits. Uh, There are all these other traits that are favored by natural selection that are either neutral in terms of survival or even come directly at its expense. I I think about the males of some arachnid species, like the relatives of the widow spiders, Mm -hmm. Um, who willingly offer themselves as meals to the female that they just mated with. So not like they happen to get eaten after mating. They they just go right to her mouth. They're like, here, eat me now. And, uh, you know, the idea is that there is probably an evolutionary trade-off 
in play there uh, that after the male has mated, he can't really do much else. Mm -hmm. And so he's best serving as fuel or food for his mate and his offspring. Yeah. I mean, you think of, again, survival of the fittest doesn't really apply to an ant colony. Yeah. Uh, you know, or, or, or at least to the individuals. Uh, and then likewise, you think of, say, um, you know, the males of, of certain rodent species that like mate until they die mm-hmm. or, uh, or a mother octopus that, uh, that essentially perishes after, uh, uh, you know, successfully uh, laying her eggs. Yeah. You know, this, the, the, these examples run counter to the notion of, of survival of the fittest. Now, survival of the fittest, you could say in the sense, still works if it's only in the sense of a metaphor again. Mm-hmm. So like you could say, well, what it really means is the ability of a species to have uh, a member of a species to have subsequent generations of its offspring survive and, and do well. But then you're just you're, – you're changing all the words there. Yeah. And, and, and survival t- of the fittest, it implies something else. Yeah, it tends to imply like there is a template, right, yeah. for, the, for the fittest. Like this was the perfect skunk. So, of course, the perfect skunk uh, is, the, is the one that went on to breed. Well, that's another reason I actually wanted to mention. So maybe the – well, well, we'll come back to that. Okay? okay. We'll come back to that one. So that's the first thing. Evolution is clearly not just driven by survival. There are tons of traits and behaviors in the, in, in the uh, natural world that are not just about an organism not dying. They're about all kinds of things related to having healthy generations of offspring. The next big thing, and I think this might be the biggest one, is that I think the phrase survival of the fittest contributes to what I'm going to call bigger batterism. (laughs) There there might already be a term for this out there, but I'm going to call it bigger batterism. This is the belief that evolution always favors organisms becoming leveled up in an almost video game sense over time, Mm. bigger, faster, stronger, more intelligent, with more keen perception. All of their abilities are going up. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, and, and this makes sense in terms of our various movie franchises. Like the villain always has to be a little, you know, step above the previous villain. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the superhero's weapons have to get a little better with each installment, right? Oh, my God. How many like superhero movie villains say something like, I am the next link in the evolutionary chain or something? <laughs> you know, they're, they're like, I'm evolved more, which means like I'm leveled up and stronger and more powerful. Right. I mean, this also ties in the the the, the idea or the, you know, the I guess the false idea of de-evolution. Right. As if it, evolution is always uh, – as if it's, it's, it's directed in, a, in an ascent of a mountain. Right. And then to go down the mountain on the other side would be de-evolution. Where Foolishness. It, it's evolution no matter which direction you're going in. It, yeah, exactly. Even when we're focusing primarily on the survival aspect of natural selection, this is not always the case that organisms gain more strength and more speed and more perceptive power and all this over time. Uh, and it, it, evolution is about becoming adapted to your environment and thriving in your environment. And so there are tons of examples in the natural world of animals becoming smaller, becoming slower, using less energy, losing capabilities and powers that even or even whole organs that their ancestors had. And if that, that looks to us like some kind of demotion or leveling down, but in fact, it's just an organism becoming better adapted to its environment and the stresses encountered therein. Right. I mean, it's kind of like a poisonous concept to even bring into your own life, right? I mean, because yeah. then you're just like, oh, I'm leveling up, leveling up year after year, year after year. And I guess if you can maintain that kind of tra- trajectory in your life and you remain happy and healthy with it, 
I guess that's one thing, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. Uh, I think most of us, a lot of us probably find that, yeah, leveling up uh, from year to year or whatever that even means mm-hmm. in, a, in the, the shape of a human life is not necessarily a sustainable vision for yourself. Yeah, and th- there are so many counterexamples to the bigger batterism that it's you, you almost don't even need to mention them because they're so numerous. A, a great one that's very common is like island dwarfism yes. right? Uh, or insular dwarfism in, in animals. This is where you tend to find that larger animals that become isolated as a population on an island tend to get smaller over time. Why would that be? Don't they want to be bigger and stronger? <laughs> Don't you always want to get bigger so you can dominate more other animals and be at the top and be big? You know, No, it's because there's an energy economy on islands mm-hmm. and that on an island you're probably exposed to a lot less foraging resources and food. And so actually it pays to have a smaller body that requires you to eat less. Yeah. So like if you if you're reading about say pygmy mammoths uh like don't don't feel sorry for the mammoth. Like, no, this they're is doing not a, great. This is yeah. great. This is a survival story. This is a success story. Uh, this is not a defeat. Now, oh, well, of course, well, the mammoths did go extinct. Well, eventually but. it's a defeat, <laughs> yes. But no, but on the other hand, like the mammoth was extremely successful for a very long time. And actually the mammoths that survived the longest were the ones that were uh, insular dwarfism mammoths. Uh, yeah. the, the mammoths that survived until just about 4,000 years ago, I think, were the ones that were on Wrangell Island in the Arctic Ocean. Woolly mammoths mammoths that uh, that I think that was the last place on earth where mammoths had survived. Another great example is cave fish blindness. Yes. Uh, so you might think, oh, how could – why would evolution take away a sense? Shouldn't it just always be adding more and more powerful senses to make you more – no. Sometimes fish populations that live on the surface in places where there's light, they migrate down into subterranean environments where it's totally dark and then they lose their sight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 again, over in generations, generations through natural selection. But yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's not a. a but part of this is Gollum's fault, right? Right. Uh, you know, modern audiences, we we think of Gollum, Smeagol, and we think, oh, it's this poor, this poor creature. Look what it has become. Well, it's become great. Look mm-hmm. what it's, it's thriving in its environment. Uh, put anything else down there, and it would uh, it would die instantly in this uh, you know in what would be for it a desert of uh, of scarce resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and there are a couple of hypotheses about why this happens. One one classic hypothesis is that sight and other senses, of course, are costly to the body. And if you live in a completely dark environment, fishes that spend less and less of their energy on sight are going to have an advantage because they can use that energy elsewhere, maybe making more eggs or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but then another hypothesis I was just reading about in a 2017 paper is that sight is lost because the fish that can see eventually find a way to leave the cave. Think about that. That, mm. that actually is an evolutionary scenario. The fish that can see eventually can find a source of light, swim toward it, and exit the cave. But blind fish can't do that, so they stay there in the cave. And by being there, they become an isolated population with these mating opportunities, and they can mate with one another. And this counts as a form of natural selection, even though it consists of an adaptation to the environment that's entirely based on the loss of a physical capacity. So another way of looking at it is that these species, they've – thrived so long in uh, in this uh, th- this this deep uh, environment that they they no longer have the capability of thriving elsewhere right uh, like you know they are they are they're obligate uh, darkness dwellers now mm-hmm. But the, the fact that they're stuck down there in a way it works out to their advantage because that's their domain right uh, and the, the fishes that that come in and that can, that have sight will just try to leave uh, so another thing, 
uh, is that I, I think there's a big problem with the phrase survival of the fittest because it is historically associated with social Darwinist ethics that mm. do not follow from the science of evolutionary biology. Uh, you know, and I, I hate when people make this comparison. You know, evolutionary biology is a descriptive science. It's not a prescriptive philosophy. It tells you what happens in nature and how species arise and why they possess the traits they have. It doesn't tell you how to live your life or what's a good way to arrange society. And uh, I think, unfortunately, there's like this historical class of sort of the the, the cutthroat capitalist type. You know, Andrew Carnegie was a big subscriber mm -hmm. of this guy Herbert. Spencer, who coined the term survival of the fittest. Uh, and, and Spencer, of course, you know, he, he would go on to use the phrase in a very different context than what Darwin intended when he took a liking to it. Darwin, of course, hoped it would remove any confusion caused about the, the metaphor of natural selection. Spencer took survival of the fittest to be more uh, than a description of what happens in nature, but something like a political credo. You know, he believed in laissez-faire economics and minimal government and believed the government uh, should not intervene on behalf of the poor uh, because it's against the laws of nature. This is not something that's implied by evolutionary biology or by science and it's, uh, it's a real abuse of the science to imply any connection there. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to just it's like the the someone in an office place using survival of the fittest as like free license to be awful. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. survival of the fittest. You know, it's just science. That's why I can be a jerk. Yeah, but you ate my yogurt that had my name <laughs> on it. <laughs> right. I mean, I I think so-called social Darwinism is a quintessential example of the appeal to nature fallacy. The idea that because something would happen naturally according to some natural principle, then therefore we should make that thing happen or we should want that thing to happen. It's almost like believing that, you know, our knowledge about the science of gravity compels us to push people off ledges. You know, it just <laughs> it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, or based on uh, like previous episodes we've done on cannibalism and the basic like economics of cannibalism in a natural environment that we should have like cannibal Wednesdays here at the office place <laughs> where human flesh is is feasted upon because, hey, it, it happens in nature all the time. Aren't we a part of nature? Shouldn't we have cannibalism Wednesdays? Yeah. Okay, two more really quick points. One more is that I think a problem with survival of the fittest is that it places emphasis on the individual in mm -hmm. evolution rather than on other places like, say, on the gene. You know, uh, for decades there have been all these arguments in evolutionary biology about what level it makes most sense to talk about the selection of natural selection happening at. You know, is it favoring individuals like this discrete blob of cells, Jeffrey the moose or Jeffrey the oak tree? Uh, that doesn't always make some sense because in some organisms, like the individual and its reproductive strategies are less discrete concepts than in, say, large mammals. And then there's a whole argument about whether or not it makes sense to say that groups of organisms can be selected en masse. We're not going to do that debate today. Uh, one of the arguments that made Richard Dawkins famous was when, you know, in the 70s when he was advocating the idea that it's each individual gene or gene complex that's the primary unit of selection and evolution and that genes can be selected independently. Um, you know, we're not going to settle this debate about levels of selection today, but I do think it's worth acknowledging that there are clearly cases where, where genes are what's being selected, at least in some instances. Well, we talked about the case of greenbeard genes in like organisms that, uh, that have a, a single gene or gene complex that appears to uh, – to be noticeable in other carriers and, and makes them treat each other nice. It's like I see you have that gene that gives you a green beard. I'm going to be special to you. Yeah. 
And then the one last point is that I think survival of the fittest as a phrase suggests evolutionary changes. Uh, we, we sort of already talked about this, are improvements that exist along a single continuum. Uh, you know, like if you ever heard the idea that humans are the most evolved yeah. animal, it suggests the idea that all organisms exist in a kind of single arena or along a single line of development when evolution means gaining power over all the others. And that's mostly just not true and not a good metaphor and doesn't really make sense. Different species compete for different ecological niches. It doesn't make sense to talk about any one species being more evolved than any other one. That's nonsense. Right. I mean, it's like talking about the intelligence of a given species. Yeah. How smart is a, is a dog versus a cat? Well, in either case, it's as smart as it needs to be. You know, I mean, this is when you're talking about just the general intelligence of the species. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you get into this, you fall into this trap of then thinking of uh, of the human mind as being this privileged uh, brain, as uh, the, the human condition being a privileged condition. And then ultimately that we're standing apart from nature, that we're standing apart from natural selection and that and, and in more extreme forms that we are not uh, – you know, at, at, uh, subject to the same risks, mm-hmm. such as the you know the risk of extinction. Uh, whereas in reality, we 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 are at risk of extinction. Uh, you could argue, uh, I think, quite firmly that we're we're working very hard at um, at making ourselves extinct. Uh, uh, if you're going to make the case that something is more evolved than something else, I think clearly the microbial life is the most evolved thing on Earth. Mm. Because it's been here the longest. <laughs> right. Uh, but it, it's been evolving the longest period of time. But you know, people, I think they just generally mean by more evolved, they mean like more intelligent or more, uh, you know, able to command more of the energy within its uh, ecological nature. Right. Or, or are you focusing on various types? Like, like say, um, you know, the human hand and its, mm-hmm. uh, its usefulness in, um, in the fine manipulation of tools and, uh, and, and whatnot, you know. Um, yeah, but you can. But again, it all comes down to what is the environment of that creature. Mm-hmm. If we suddenly had uh, crab claws and crabs had human hands, well, I don't think it would work out very well for either um, uh, organism, right? I want crab claws. Well, yeah, we could probably we could figure out things to do, I guess. But we would be severely limited, and so would the crab. But I don't know. Maybe somebody can do a film on this. This is the next big crab film. All right. I think we got to call it there. All right. Uh, well, as we close out here, I do have one question. We mentioned like the the the, the what bigger batterism um, mm-hmm. uh, idea here. I am too old to have grown up with Pokemon in my life, but I know Pokemon was a huge influence on a lot of people. It was a part of people's childhood, and there is a like a like a hierarchy of development and upgrading, and like uh, to some level at least evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am curious like how that plays into everything. Like is Pokemon was it is it useful in in your understanding of evolution? Uh, is it does it get in the way? Like how does it factor into you know, like your general worldview? That's a good I, question. I, I would love to hear from folks on that. All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find them. That's where you'll find links to various social pages and whatnot. Uh, but if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do, tell friends about it, rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. That helps us like nothing else. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison, and our guest producers, Paul Deccan and Maya Cole. If you'd like to get in touch with us, as always, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 